expected. The text of the sermon is taken from uh, the gospel. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. Uh, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. There came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. A few years back, about three, we buried Annie's sister, Jackie, uh, down in North Carolina. Uh, she had died of, of, uh, of COVID. Uh, and it was a beautiful service, a graveside, because of all of the restrictions that were going on then, as we all remember. Uh, a graveside service directed by her Baptist preacher, who was just an excellent man, a fine Christian, and a man who obviously uh, cared deeply for his parishioners. Uh, but being being Catholic, uh, I, I could not uh, forget that that particular Friday that day happened to be the Feast of the Transfiguration. I grew up in a Baptist church. I wouldn't have known the Transfiguration as a kid growing up from the 4th of July. In fact, I'd know the 4th of July a lot better uh, than I would. And uh, this is probably still the case for a lot of Americans anyway. Uh, that is, never mind, I'm going to get back to the sermon. I'm starting to go off in the direction. Um, Transfiguration is a holy day of obligation. A holy day of obligation is a time that's set apart by the church to commemorate a major event in the life of our Lord or one of the many heroes of the church. Christmas, Easter, Ascension are days that commemorate an event in the life of our Lord. Uh, our Lady, Blessed Virgin Mary, or one of the apostles, Peter, James, John, those that are mentioned here are other examples. We have feasts for all of them. Uh, John Castine, the younger, he was the son of the former president of the university. Uh, John's a poet, and he had a wonderful line in one of his poems that read, I owe a debt I don't know how to repay. I owe a debt I don't know how to repay. And in a matter of speaking, that gets at uh, a holy day uh, of obligation. Gratitude, respect, admiration, maybe even bafflement, awe and love. When we find ourselves in a place in, uh, in our life uh, where we owe a debt that we don't know how to repay, it's a blessed event. Uh, it, we may have discovered uh, the wonderful God-given capacity to love and to adore God and maybe, uh, maybe even to love one another as well. Well, when that happens, when you're at a place... Uh, then uh, you owe a debt, if you don't have to repay, the only thing to do is to worship. Now, in our text, our Lord fed 5,000 people. Uh, and shortly after that event, which he did several times, more than once, the Bible says he went to a lonely place to pray. And his disciples followed him to that place. And then after they prayed together, he asked them a question. He said, uh, who do they say that I am? Uh, and they all had different 
things to say. Some said Elijah. Some say you're a great prophet. You're a great teacher. Uh, and Jesus stopped them and he fixed Peter with his eyes. And he said, who do you say that I am, Peter? And in a flash of divine inspiration, Peter blurted out, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He probably wasn't even thinking about it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then our Lord looked around at his motley crew of followers and he said, some of you standing here will not die until you see the kingdom of God coming in glory. Eight days after he said that, Jesus took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, on a hike up a mountain to pray. These three men, Peter, uh, James, and John, had been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. James and John were at the Jordan when he was baptized, and they followed him. Uh, they were at, uh, all three were at the wedding uh, when he turned the water into wine. He healed people he, with a touch. He even raised the dead. Uh, they saw him feed over 5,000 people at one time, miraculously. They heard him preach weird things like, blessed are the meek, Blessed are those who mourn. You must lose your life to save it. Stuff they'd never heard before. Now Jesus told them that he, Jesus Christ, well, he didn't say Jesus Christ. Uh, he said that he, Jesus, uh, uh, by his own power, had initiated God's kingdom that would one day fill up the whole created order. Peter, James, and John were on the way up that mountain with him that day. They may have thought about some of those things. Probably did. Probably talked about them. They reached the top, and then Jesus went off a distance by, uh, by himself uh, to pray. The old King James translation has it, and, and he came apart from them. There's a Baptist preacher back in North Carolina named uh, I can't remember his name right now. He's from, uh, from Greensboro who preached a very famous sermon entitled, If You Don't Come Apart, You'll Come Apart, which is pretty true. Uh, so he went off on his own to pray. Now they knew that he, they knew he wanted them to pray as well. And they wanted to do what he wanted them to do. But they just didn't do it. They couldn't do it. Instead, they fell asleep. It's not the only time they fell asleep. And you know, we all know that. When they should have been attentive uh, to what was going on around them. One of the major lessons for Christians to learn is the importance of what the church fathers call watchfulness. Uh, watchfulness. Or better yet, in our language, attentiveness is no easy task. It is not easy. It's very hard to do. Uh, and, 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 and we're called to do just that. Uh, we are called to buckle down, not drift through life, uh, which isn't living at all, but to buckle down uh, to being a Christian, to get serious about living 
attentively, intelligently, reasonably, and responsibly in life. And when you do that, and as I've said a million times, and you know it yourself, nobody can do it for you. You have to do that yourself. And when you do it, then what you, you will experience yourself appropriating the image of God in your life, which is a very big deal. You will, you will experience yourself appropriating these gifts from God which aimed at the image of God in yourself because God created you to live attentively, intelligently, reasonably, and responsibly in this world. And it looks like this world actually seems to have been made for someone who was willing to be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible because the reality of the world we live in really responds to that. Are y'all with me? I'm saying, this is what I'm saying, that when you do that, When you buckle down and you determine to be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, and responsible, and I'm talking about doing this as a Christian, because there's another way y'all can do it, except to do it as a Christian. What I'm saying is that when you do that, you live true to yourself. You don't have to go around figuring out how to be true to yourself anymore. Okay? That's how you're true to yourself. You will be true to yourself. You will be an authentic Christian, the genuine article, and you will live true to God without whom there is no truth and as a matter of fact, no you or them. Attentiveness is a natural human faculty that may... Are y'all listening to me? Listen to me. Attempted, attentiveness is a natural human faculty it is an activity that may, by our conscious and intentional resolution and work, become a virtue. A virtue is a habit, a good habit that bears good fruit. What we do, our deeds, form our character. Attempted, attentiveness is our very first step to discovery, to understanding, and attentiveness may also, that faculty, that activity, you may train to stand guard over your mind. So what I am suggesting is that there is a twofold opportunity with attentiveness because it is the opportunity to be attentive to what is around you, what is before you, but also to be attentive to what is within you. But it isn't effortless. It really isn't. It takes hard work to do that. You've heard this before. Sow a thought. Reap a deed. Sow a deed. Reap a habit. Sow a habit. Reap a character. Sow a character. Reap a destiny. To let our first thought be that to be attentive 
Now, as Jesus prayed, Peter learned, this is why he talks about it so frequently, uh, Peter uh, learned firsthand just how difficult that is. So when Peter exhorts the church to be sober, to be wide awake, to be alert, to be vigilant, he's speaking out of disappointing personal experience. And it took Peter his whole life uh, with Jesus to learn the importance of attentiveness. This is not, as you well know, the last time uh, that he uh, did that. Jesus prayed in, the, in Gethsemane. His disciples fell asleep. Uh, and when the Romans arrested him, most of them ran away. Uh, and we could go on into that, but then I'm being distracted from what I want to be attentive to, which is the rest of this story we have here. Peter, James, and John fell asleep. But they woke up. And when they woke up, everything was different. The Bible says, as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. It's not glistening. That's an easy mistake to make. It's glistering, not a word that we use very frequently. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which... He should soon accomplish at Jerusalem. Now for the first time, they see our Lord's divinity flash in dazzling brightness. Eight days before this, he had promised them that some of them would not die till they see the kingdom of God. And I submit to you that they're seeing it now. They're seeing the kingdom of God. Peter declared his faith in Jesus' divinity you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now he sees it with his own wide awake eyes. His face, the Bible says, shone like the sun, too bright to look upon. Even his clothing suddenly became the brightest light they had ever seen. The word glistering is a translation of the Greek, of Greek word, a word that's used one time uh, in the New Testament. And it means... Listen to this. It means to emit light, to shine, to glister as lightning. It doesn't mean to reflect light. It means to emit the light. The point being that Christ is the uncreated light of the Father. He's not reflecting light. He is light. He is the Shekinah glory of God, made flesh. And as closest disciples look upon the glorious God come down from heaven. Now, this is what I want to say. We have been, we have all been born again. And this radicalized state of being one of the baptized is to have God the Father as our Father and to have Jesus the Messiah as our sibling. When we are baptized, I can't think of a better day to be baptized than transfiguration. Uh, when we are baptized into Jesus, we are baptized into the whole Trinity. We are baptized into his humanity and we are baptized into his glistering divinity as well. And that's why I think Peter later on in another epistle writes that uh, God has granted us his great uh, his promises and his, his very precious and great promises 
so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. So we're right back here. One paragraph, last paragraph, uh, 100 words, maybe. So we're back to talking about participation. Uh, for our participation in God, uh, or as St. Peter puts it, our, our partaking of the divine nature. And that brings us to our understanding of what grace is. Real quickly, I want to say this. Uh, when I was uh, growing up as a kid uh, in church, uh, we were taught that grace is, is unmerited favor. It's a free and undeserved help that God gives us in order that we might respond uh, to, to, to God's call to be his children. That's, that's good as far as it goes. It just doesn't go quite far enough. Uh, it, it, uh, it's partially correct. Now, what I want you to understand is this. Is I, don't, I want you to understand that grace is not a utilitarian instrument. That is to everything that in the world today gets reduced to instrumentality. And, and the grace of God, I mean, it's like Jesus, yeah, but what has he done for me lately? You know, or take the sacraments and transform them into mere instruments of utility. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, the, the, instru the, the, the grace of God flows through the sacraments, and this is what I want to say. Grace is a state of being. It is a state of being. It is a state of participating in the life of God. And you've all been baptized. And in this state of grace, uh, we participate in the life of the God who is God which is equivalent to participating in eternal life. And we do that, we, we don't achieve it, we receive it as God's free gift through holy baptism. And thus, we are constituted as a new, renewed humanity. A new and a renewed humanity. Uh, and because of that, uh, we may desire uh, to and we must live transfigured lives because it is our transfigured life individually and as a parish as a community uh, that communicates the holiness the wonder the love the free ungrudging generosity of God the blessed trinity to this beautiful and yet broken world that we live in. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.